But turn over, if you will, to Second uh, Peter chapter 1. We've been starting our study through the book of Second Peter. And uh, we've looked at uh, a couple different um, things here. And I just want to kind of recap some of that for you. And I, I just want to read uh, the first um, 11 verses for us just so that we can put it, uh, keep it in its context. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort... To supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now we've broken Second Peter down into a couple different things, and the first topic that we're looking at is the topic of knowing our salvation, knowing our salvation, um, and that's what he talks about in these first eleven verses. He talks about how we can know and be secured in our faith. Verses one to eleven. And then verses 12 to 21, he talks about knowing the scriptures. And then in verses chapter 2, verses 1 to 22, he talks about knowing who the false teachers are, knowing the adversaries. And then chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, knowing how to live this Christian life, knowing your sanctification. But so far we've looked at the source of our salvation in verse 1. It says, to those who have obtained a faith. And we talked about how if you have obtained a faith, it must have been gotten from somewhere else other than yourself. The source of our salvation, beloved, is God and God alone. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever think that somehow the source of your salvation is coming to church or reading your Bible or praying. That's not the source of your salvation. The source of your salvation is is God. And then we looked at verse 2 and we talked about the substance of our salvation a little bit. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. And we talked about how important it was to understand that grace had to come before peace. You can't experience the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God through, our, through the knowledge, he says there, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 and 4, we've looked at how important it is to understand that our, our, our salvation is sufficient. It says there, His divine power has granted to us all things, not some things. We don't get half saved, amen? We get fully saved. His, his salvation is sufficient to save us. We don't have to do anything else to complete that action of salvation. Hold on to that thought. And then verses 5 to 11 talks about how we can be assured of our faith, the surety of our faith. And last week, we talked about how important assurance was to the Christian. What are the benefits of assurance? We looked at several. They're up there on the screen. They should be. It makes us love and praise God more. It puts joy into our earthly duties and trials. It makes us zealous and obedient in servants in service. It, it gives us victory over temptation. It makes us content, even though maybe we don't have a whole lot in this world of material goods. It makes the suffering heart endure with patience. It pacifies a troubled conscience and it removes a fear of death. When you run into a Christian and they're unsure of their salvation, there's even some churches that teach that it's not correct to be sure of your salvation. They teach against the assurance of your faith. They think, no, you could never save and know for sure that you're saved. That's not correct. But you can always tell Christians who are not growing in their faith when you meet them. Because they have these characteristics, and they were outlined here, and we looked at these last week. First of all, they're barren or idle. In other words, they're not doing anything worth anything for Christ. It says that in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Idle. And then secondly, they keep you from being unfruitful, it says in verse 8. In other words, just because you know Christ, that doesn't mean that you're going to bear fruit. There's a lot of Christians who are idle. There's a lot of Christians who are not doing what God's called them to do. They're still Christians. They're still saved. But they're idle. They're unfruitful. And then he says there in verse 9, if you lack these qualities, you're nearsighted so much so that you're blind. And that's the third thing there. You can always tell a Christian is not growing when you don't see anything going on in their life. They're idle. They're unfruitful. And they're blind. They lack spiritual insight. And behind all that is really a poor memory. He goes on and says that they have forgotten that they were cleansed. Can you imagine as a Christian forgetting that you were cleansed by the blood of Christ? Don't be too quick to say you'd never do that. Even Peter himself in Luke twenty two sixty one, that verse says, Then Peter remembered... The word of the Lord. <laughs> Sometimes we forget certain things. Sometimes we forget what God has saved us out of. 
And we have to be careful because that's when we start to enter into kind of a being a pious Christian, being self-righteous, thinking that, oh yes, I would never do like that person would. I looked at this poor soul that was in the hearing the other day, hiding his face under his prison garment. The brutality that he affected upon those three girls and who God only knows who else. In the 11 some 12 years that they were imprisoned in that house and nobody knew it. I could see the shame written on his face. I turned to my wife and I said, you know what? It's hard to believe God could save somebody like that. God could save somebody like that. As wretched as they are, as sinful as they are, as warped as they are, God could save somebody like that. Don't ever forget that. Because the minute we forget that, we begin to think, oh, well, you know, we're not like them. Beloved, yes, we are. We're all wretched before God. We're all stained with sin. We all need a Savior. That's clear. The Bible clearly points out, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you fall short of the glory of God, you fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how far you fall short. Don't ever find yourself in the category of a Christian who's looking down your holy nose at somebody who's not a Christian saying, oh, I would never be like them. Look at them. Look at how they live. That's disgusting. Don't ever go there. Don't ever forget from whence God has saved your wretched soul. Now, last week, we began to look at this text, and I said we're going to do something a little different. We're going to look at it backwards. So we actually began in verse 11, 10 and 11, and then we looked at 8 and 9, and then today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 7. And the reason I did that is because the focus of this text really is verse 10. Look at what verse 10 says. I'll I'll read it for you again. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, and I said, well, what things? I said, we're going to get to it next week. Today's next week, so we're going to get to those today. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these things, you will not fall. You will never fall. And you will have richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom. We looked at our present rest that we can have. He says if you're diligent, you can make sure of your calling. Make your election sure. Put forth some effort there. Understanding how God has saved you, what God has saved you from. That gives us present rest to realize that we are saved. We should be able to go to bed at night, lay our head on the, ta- on the bed. Unless you sleep on a table, that would be a little weird. But Lay your head on the pillow and, and just go to rest. Go to sleep. Because of the surety of our salvation. That we know, that we know, that we know that he has saved us. That he's called us, that he's elected us. 
And that gives us our future rest as well, because in verse 11 it says, you'll be richly provided for when you come into your eternal, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The idea is is that once we're saved, beloved, we want to do everything we can for the Lord. We don't just sit back in the armchairs of grace and say, okay, he saved me, now I'm just going to do nothing. That's not what Christianity is about. I've said time and time again, God doesn't save us to be spectators in the Colosseum of life. He's never saved us for that. He saved us to be participants. He saved us to get down in the field and play the game. And it takes some effort. It takes some planning. It takes some purpose. And that brings us back all the way. In verse verse 8, we looked at the positive perspective on this. If you do these things, you'll never you'll never uh, fall. You'll you'll be in a, you won't be ineffective or unfruitful. And then in verse 11, or in verse 9, excuse me, he says, but if you do lack these things, you're going to be blind. So there's both a positive and a negative outlook there. That brings us all the way back to that list of things that we're going to look at today. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, just let go and let God? What do you want? Just let go and let God. I mean, I understand what they're saying, they're saying, don't worry about, don't become a worry wart, don't worry yourself sick about everything. But John MacArthur said this, he says, my motto is this, hold on and let God. <laughs> hold on and let God. Don't let go. That's the last thing you want to do. You know, it's important to understand that there's almost kind of a, a paradox here. There's something we can't quite understand Back in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of Quakers and a lot of people of the quietest faith who, who basically, um, they don't do anything really in the Christian life at all. They're very spiritually uh, passive, you might say. They don't, they don't believe that we should be eager to do all these things. They're very passive in their approach to their spirituality. And part of the reason is, is they believe that God has done it all already. I mean, isn't that what he just said? It says that he's given us all the same precious faith, a divine power. He's given us exceeding precious promises, a divine nature. He says in verse 4, or verse 3, that he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, look at verse 5 with me. He says, for this reason. In other words, because God has granted us everything that we need in our Christian life, there's nothing that we could add to our salvation. Nothing at all. If we're saved by God's grace, we're saved. Everything we have in Christ is because of His divine power. Everything that He has granted to us that pertains to life and godliness comes through the true knowledge of knowing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have these incredible promises that He speaks of. That He's granted to us. 
And because of that, we've escaped, it says, the corruption that's in this world by lust. So because you have all those things, we're giving everything we need in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 5. Because of all that, then he says this, make every effort to supplement your faith. You're probably sitting there going, wait a minute, I thought you just said he gave us everything. Why do we have to make an effort for anything? If we're complete in Christ, which we are, that's what the Bible says, why does it say that we have to make an effort? Why does it say that we have to be diligent? That's what we want to look at. See, all of our gracious, godly resources have been provided for us. And yet, on the other hand, we are still called to give God our maximum effort. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, it, it's like taking two teams and telling team A, you're going to win this game. The outcome of this game is you're going to beat these people. You're going to beat the other team. Hands down, you're going you're to beat them. You can take that to the bank. But you know what? You have to play with every bit of energy you have throughout the game. Some of the players will probably say, well, if we're going to win, we're going to win. Who cares? Sometimes that's the kind of attitude we can have in our Christian lives. If we're going to win, if we're on the right team, if God saved us, if he's given us everything that pertains to godliness and life, why do we have to do anything? Why can't we just sit back in the armchairs of grace and just relax until he comes back? Because that's not what the word God tells us to do. I don't understand why it doesn't tell us, but that's what it does not tell us to do. It doesn't tell us just to sit back and become lazy and do absolutely nothing and just kind of huddle up with four other people, you know, us four no more, and bolt the door and say, hey, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. It says that we all have a part in this somehow. Somehow we have to understand that. Somehow we have to realize that God wants us to put forth an effort. That's what he says in verse uh, 5 there. Make every effort to supply your faith. See, there's, there's a progression here. That word supply really means to uh, make a strong effort to supply something that's definitely necessary. Believers are compelled to call on all their energy to live godly lives. That's what we're called to do. You can find that throughout Scripture. Believers have to carry out diligent effort. That word means with eagerness, that we, we run to the, the event. We're not lagging behind because we know we're going to win in the end. There's a sense of urgency here. And the idea is that, that we are giving everything we have, every fiber of our being to the Lord to add to what he gave us. That's what it says. Make every effort to supplement your faith. He's not saying do these things in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, if you're saved, you'll be doing these things. You'll see these qualities in your life in an expanding measure because it's God that's doing that work in you and through you. But you have to apply this. That's what God has called us to do. The foundation here is our faith. It says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement what? Your faith. Your faith comes from God. It doesn't come from you. The idea here is that faith is genuine. This is a faith that is a saving faith. You know, there's a faith that's not a saving faith. There's some people that have faith that it could be in a sort of whole bunch of different things, but it's not in the right stuff. And as a result, they're not saved. And you can see it in their life. Because those are the people sometimes that, that, you know, they're just religious on the outside. They're playing a game. But here in verse 5, he says, give all diligence to add to your faith. That's where it has to start. You have to, you have to be a Christian. You have to understand that you have to come to Christ as your Savior. If you don't understand that, then you, you, can't, you, know, you, you can't even get to you know, the, the first base in the, the game of life here. You're, you're not going to be able to make it. You have to understand that God came to earth in the form of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on a human body, yet was fully God. Lived a life that was perfect in every way. Showed his deity time and time again as we went through the Gospel of Matthew. We saw the deity of Christ, just his healing and his, his miracles and his knowledge. His, everything about him spoke, man, this guy is not the same as somebody else. He is different. He is the God-man. And Jesus, as the God-man went and lived a life 30-some years, went to a, a cross and died, even though he had never done anything wrong. They, they crucified him. And they crucified him because upon him was placed all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in his work. And he paid the penalty for our sin. Nobody else has done that. Nobody else can do that. Only Christ can do that. You can talk to a Hindu. You can talk to a Muslim. You can talk to a whole bunch of different world religious people. The, 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 a lot of the difference in our beliefs comes down to, you know what? You can be forgiven. And their ears actually perk up. What do you mean? <laughs> they don't understand that in their religions. But in Christianity, it's the fact that Christ died he was buried. He rose again. That paid the penalty for our sin. And when you put your faith and your trust in his work and not your own, then all of a sudden, God can save you. You're expressing a need for a Savior. And the Word of God says that all that come to him and no means will he ever cast out. But you have to understand, you have a need for a Savior. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are filled with sin. They're wicked. They're wretched. The Bible says you can't even know your own heart. But as Christians, I want you to understand we live by faith. It's the only way to live. We don't live by works. A lot of people with the politics and all the stuff that's been going on in the news 
You hear people saying, Christian people, saying, man, if things don't change, we're done, we're finished. It's game over. If things don't hurry up and kind of take a, a, a quick turn for, for a different course here, we're in big trouble. And they get all tensed up about it. I don't know about you, but I don't live by the news. I don't live by the media. I, I watch a lot of news. I probably shouldn't watch as much as I do because it does irritate me at times. But I live by faith in God. And I know that God somehow one day is going to come back and I'm going to go with him or I'm going to die and I'll be in his presence. And all this stuff is not going to matter. It's just not going to matter. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians 3, 3 says, Having begun in the Spirit, are we now to be perfected in the flesh? In other words, if God has saved you by the Spirit of God, once you're saved, now do you just kind of continue on and and just do things in the flesh, thinking somehow that's going to continue to save you? No. The reason I say all that is because when we come to these, these characteristics in verse 5, 6, and 7, I don't want you to think that these are things that you can just check off your list. If you're doing these things, then I guess I'm saved. God wants us to have absolute dependence upon Him for our salvation. By faith, we believe God to raise up a, a greater testimony, a greater ministry, to bring more people into His kingdom. To send more people out to preach. To send people to teach and to serve within the church and outside the church. We believe God for supplying funds for ministry, supplying funds for our own households. We believe God is able and and, and willing and, and gracious with our facilities here and provides for what we need here. Whatever it takes to do the work of God, God will provide. God has always proven himself faithful time and time again. And he will do what he desires to do. See, that's why it tells us that he who began a good work in you will what? Be faithful to complete it. Not will attempt to if you cooperate with him. Not maybe if things go the right way, no. He will do it because he's God and we're not. This word here where it says supply or or supplement, it has the idea of an overabundance. You're not just kind of, you know, this isn't just making every effort to supplement your wife, or your, your wife, your, your faith. <laughs> Boy, I'll have to edit that one. Um, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Okay, that word supplement means to do it in an abundance. It, it comes out of the idea of a, a, a choir uh, servant in the, in the old times. And what I mean by that is they'd have big productions, they'd have big musical productions, and they'd need people to supply certain things, whether it's robes or, or move things around, whatever. And these people would always do it with an eagerness, and they would always do it with an abundance. They would have the people in the production would have more than they ever would dream of having. And they came to be referred to as a supplier. 
They supplied the needs of a choir that was going through a production. And whenever they had a need, they would look to that person, and that person was always there to give whatever they needed, lavishly and abundantly beyond generously what they ever needed. And the idea here is that believers must supply, they must give lavishly, they must give generously, I'm not talking about monetary things here, alongside all that has been provided by Christ. All the virtues that we're going to look at today help us to maintain our assurance of salvation. They don't save us, but they add to our assurance of salvation. They're, they're building blocks. Well, let's look at the first one here. He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue. It's rarely used in the Bible, in the original Greek, this word. It's, it's commonly used in secular Greek. It refers to excellence or the proper fulfillment of something. Think of it this way. You know, if you had to use a knife for one thing, the one thing the knife was designed for was to what? Cut something. That's that knife's virtue. If you had a racehorse, the best thing that racehorse could do for you is run fast in the race. That's what it was created for. That's what it was trained for. And the best thing a Christian can do is to be like Christ. He says, add to your faith virtue. So add to your life of faith the excellence of Christ-likeness. Be like the Savior. It really came to encompass the most outstanding quality in somebody's life. The excellent fulfillment of a task or a duty. I'm reminded Philippians 4.8 Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, this kind of virtue is not meant to be a a, a virtue that you hide, that nobody sees. It's, It's meant to be the kind of virtue that everybody sees, that it's on display for all to see. And because of your faith in Christ, you're adding to that faith this virtue, this this Christ-likeness that all look at and go, wow, that person's different. And then it says, secondly, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with, what's it say? Knowledge. Knowledge. Here, Peter uses actually a different word than the word we looked at before when he's talking about a deep understanding of Christ when back in verse 3 and 4 when he says, through the knowledge of him who called us. This is not the same word. It takes off the first part of that word. It's just gnosis. The other one's epinosis. This is just gnosis. It it speaks of a very practical knowledge, a very practical wisdom. And knowledge refers to that divine truth that is foundational so that we can have the proper spiritual discernment and proper spiritual wisdom in our lives. In, In Romans 15, 14, 
Paul writes this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. See, that's who we are in Christ. He has filled us up with knowledge of himself. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So there's people that fight against the knowledge of God. And we are to count them as adversaries. And then he says there at the end of 10.5, 2 Corinthians, Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or even over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And so, from the day we heard of it, we cannot... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, a believer should add to his faith excellence and apply it practically. The truth properly understood and applied. You know, a lot of people know a lot of stuff. They have a lot of biblical data up in their head. They even got a show. What's that show called? That game show about the Bible. Whatever it's called. I don't know. And they ask them questions about the Bible. And some of these people on there, man, they're just brilliant. But I bet you when you look at their life, there's a void there. There's something wrong. They're not... I've run into a lot of so-called Christians who have a lot of head knowledge, but somehow that, that knowledge hasn't transferred out into their life. They can tell you about all kinds of Old Testament characters and all kinds of things that you never even heard of in the Bible. And yet they miss the boat practically. They're not applying their knowledge practically. It's important that we do that. When you memorize Scripture, don't just memorize Scripture so that you can say you memorize Scripture. Use it practically in your life. Hopefully it's, it's verses that apply to you personally. That you can recall because they mean something to you. I'm reminded of uh, sometimes that, you, know, you deal with kids in, in a program called Awana, which is a wonderful program. But part of the program in Awana, it's a children's ministry, is that to get to a book, you have to memorize certain scriptures. And I remember when I was, used to be a youth pastor and in between the, the, uh, the, the teenage things, we'd go down and listen to the kids recite their verses. And they'd run over to you and, you, you know, okay, what's the first? And they'd say the verse. And they just, you know, it was like, it was like they were possessed by something else. You know, they, they were just staring off. They're, they're, they're just rattling through this verse. And, you know, they'd give the address. And, boy, they'd just rip them right off, you know, 10 verse, boom, you know. Okay, do I get my little prize? And I'd always throw a, a monkey wrench in there, you know, because they'd, they'd have three or four verses that they'd be reciting. And they'd stop at the the, the, the uh the second one, or the first one, long enough to take a breath just so they can continue with the second one because they just wanted to get this thing over. And they'd stop the first verse, and I'd say, oh, oh, wait a minute. So what's this mean to you? What? What do you mean? Uh, we're just supposed to say the verses. What are you doing? You know? And they'd get all in. They couldn't remember anything. And I'm thinking, you don't really know this stuff. You know, they're doing it for an ulterior motive. And, and that's good because it is somehow hiding it in their heart. I mean, kids are kids. But I think as adults, we need to be aware that when we're studying and when we're learning things in the Scripture, do it in a, in a practical sense. Don't just sit down and read through the Bible because you want to say you read through the Bible. Do it because you love God's Word and you want to spend time with the Lord. You want to spend time in the book. 
True knowledge is knowledge that is acted out. It's practical knowledge. Once again, it's not something that you hide. You have this kind of knowledge, people will know it. Well, look at the third thing here. He says, to your virtue, add knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Now, these aren't all individual little things that you can pick out off the shelf. Think of them kind of as a uh, necklace, and you have a piece of thread, and you're, you're threading all these things on the necklace. They're all part of the whole thing, and they build upon each other. And so he t- speaks here of self-control. We all need self-control at times, don't we? Did you ever lose it? Did you ever get angry? Frustrated? I never do. <laughs> Just don't talk to my wife, okay? Now, I've gotten, believe me, I've gotten very frustrated at times. And what happens when you get frustrated and you get angry? You lose self-control. And you end up doing something or saying something that's just downright stupid for a Christian to to say. But you do it. Because you lost self-control. See, this this kind of knowledge, when you add self-control to it, it's kind of building. Self-control here literally means holding yourself in. Holding yourself in. I don't know where my wife and I were the other day, but we were walking somewhere. We walked, I think it was by a storefront. You know how you can see a reflection in the storefront when you walk by? I'm walking, I look, and I'm like, whoa. Man, I put on some weight. I had like a t-shirt on. It was kind of tight. Saw my stomach. I'm thinking, I've never had a stomach. What's going on? I've been telling you. She told me, you know. And I thought, wow. You know, it kind of it kind of shocked me. And then, you know, we walked by the next, and I'm sucking it in, you know. I look pretty good now, you know. That's what the idea is here, holding it in. You know, that's what it means to hold oneself in, self-control. We could all use self-control when it comes to food and other things. But you know what? It comes down to basically controlling our passions rather than being controlled by them. How do you break the will of sin? You break it by self-discipline. You break it by self-control. This term was used by athletes who thought to, sought to really self-discipline and, and self-restrain themselves. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9, 27 when it talks about even beating their body into submission. They would also abstain from rich foods and wines and sexual activity in order to focus all their strength and attention on their training. And you say, well, how does that fit in to all this? Because you know what, beloved? Remember, the, the theme here of this book is is knowledge it's it's understanding the proper things and guarding your heart against false teachers and false prophets that he speaks of in in chapter two but false theology inevitably it divorces faith from conduct it always divorces faith from conduct because it cannot deliver the soul from sin's harmful effects 
and it, it forces the followers to, to battle for self-control on their own. And they end up indulging even more in their lusts. We are called to bring all things into captivity in Christ. We don't live free and loose as Christians. You know, I, I, I speak to some Christians and I wonder sometimes if, if the idea of, in their, in their mind, as far as sin in their life is concerned, it's not so much to stay away from sin. I think some Christians have the idea that, you know what, I want to get as close to the edge as I can without bringing dishonor to the Lord. And they'll inch their way closer, closer, closer. I'm not really hurting anybody. I know this isn't, you know, maybe some people consider this not honoring the Lord, but that's okay. You know, we live in grace. They make up all kinds of excuses. I mean, the Bible tells us that we have to exhibit self-control that we have to be disciplined in our Christian lives, that we can't just go out and do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Remember, we're, we're referred to as what? Servants of Christ, slaves of Christ. We don't just get to do whatever we want. We don't have our own rights as Christians. No, our right is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all we have. So self-control is very important. And then he says, and self-control with steadfastness or patience. Some of your, your, your verses, your translations may, may, may read. With patience or steadfastness. This word really has the idea of persevering courageously against all odds. Uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, when you, you see them come to Christ, they're all excited, and boy, they got this change in their life, everything's great. And they flourish in their Christian walk. You know, it's the beginning, it's they're new, you know, boy, this is all new to them, and they're reading books, and they're going to churches, and they're doing all sorts of things. But as soon as they hit some resistance, as soon as something happens in their walk that, you know, is just kind of out of left field, boy, all of a sudden, they fall. They have a hard time. And when you can't go right through any difficulty and, and stand courageously against Satan attacks and the world's opposition, then you've, you've got, kind of have to have this never give up persistence. Never give in. It's a, it's a perseverance that takes you through the hard times. This was, this term was really uncommon in, in classical Greek. In the New Testament, it uses the word frequently to refer to remaining strong in unwelcome toil and hardship. One commentator, Barclay, says this. Hupomone, which is the word, is usually translated patience. But he says this, patience is too passive a word. Cicero defines its Latin equivalent, the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. Didymus of Alexandria wrote this. 
It is not that the righteous man, speaking of Job, must be without feeling, although he must patiently bear the things which afflict him. But it is true virtue when a man deeply feels the things he toils against, but nevertheless despises sorrows for the sake of God. See, this, this word here, it, it really has the idea of, of not just simply accepting things and enduring things, It's said of Jesus that it says in Hebrews 12, too, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It's, it's a Christian steadfastness. Just irrespective of what happens to you, you're going to hang in there. You're going to be patient. You're going to be steadfast for the cause of Christ. It's a courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us Even in the worst event, we move on to another step on the upward way. That's the idea. So he says steadfastness, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, patience, or steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness. Eusebia, it's, 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 it's translated, it means reverence, it means worship, even. Godliness is a life of worship. In Psalm 16, 8, David said this, I have set the Lord always before me. When the Greeks would think about godliness, it, in, it really encompassed all the rituals related to worship and loyalty that they gave to their pagan gods. Respect toward all that is divine is another definition. The Apostle Paul instructed Timothy that such reverence toward God is the highest priority because of its eternal value. Paul wrote this, Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, the sad thing is, unfortunately today in Christianity, there's a lot of churches that are filled to capacity with a lot of programs and a lot of routines and a lot of different things. They got gimmicks they got going on or whatever. But you know what? You walk into those places and at times there's very little reverence for God. Very little reverence for it's almost like kind of like they're having a party. Now we should be joyful in our worship. You know, you want to clap, clap. If you want to, you know, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That we're fine with that. Do it in an orderly way. But you don't want to become so frivolous that it it's a rock concert. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not what we're here for on Sunday mornings. We're here to worship our Creator, our God, our Savior. And we have to bring some godliness, some reverence into that worship. It should be at the core. Also, a lot of churches today, not like they're just having a block party, but they're almost, they're, they're run like the, you know, the, the next corporation. You know, a, a church is not meant to be a business, beloved. It's just not. And there are some churches... 
thank God this isn't one of them, but there are some churches that they just got policy after policy after policy coming out their ears. I mean, you can't wiggle your, your, your little toe without, you know, well, is, that, is that policy? <laughs> kind of crazy. Is that in the Constitution? Now, we need rule and we need order, clearly. But we don't want to wake up like the church at Sardis, a dead church, thinking, oh, we got all this other stuff. We have to remember we're here because and solely for the worship of the Lord. Godliness. And then he says, and godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is where we get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, okay? Has the idea of brotherly kindness, um, affection for others within the church. Peter recalled what Jesus told the religious leaders in Matthew 22. He says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, testing Jesus. And here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love for each other, beloved. Brotherly love, sisterly love is important in the church. I mean, the best way to translate this is probably friendship. Do you have friends in the church? Are we affectionate to one another within the church? I mean, sometimes, you know, you wonder if people, you know, come to church, they hear a message, they sing the songs, and they leave. There's no bonding, there's no friendship, there's no dialogue, there's no relationship. That's not the way it ought to be. Now, granted, some need to go to work after church, and we totally understand that. That's, that's beside the point. But you get what I'm saying. What are we talking about here? We're talking about discipleship. You know, we're talking about brothers and sisters um, coming together around a love for Christ. Add friendships to our faith is really what it's saying. I mean, what is discipleship? Some people get all hung up on that word. Basically, it's very simple. It's nothing more than a friendship built around a spiritual relationship to Christ. That's all discipleship is. You don't have to make it any more than that. You get together with a brother or sister in Christ and you talk about spiritual things. That's discipleship. You're building each other up. Discipleship occurs when two people are molded together in a deep affection with spiritual perspective. Do we see that in our lives? Do we see that in our church? The conversation between two disciples is about God, okay? It's not about the Giants winning the game or about the latest weather forecast or whatever. You're, you're here gathering together to discuss about the Lord. It involves pouring ourselves into somebody, um, helping them grow, building friendships. Don't limit yourself to your own little cliquish group. Break out and, and, and get to know other people. Don't fall in the habit when we have our fellowship time after church. And this happens. 
Uh, sitting at the same table with the same people every week. Eating the same food, you know. Break out, you know, go meet somebody you haven't met before. Go sit at a different table. It'll probably mess somebody else up. You know, when you come in here Sunday mornings, you know, sit somewhere else. You want to mess around with the pastor? Sit somewhere else, you know. I mean, you don't know, always have to sit in the same place. I tell you to do that. I'm, I'm that way as well. I'm very much a creature of habit, so I'm preaching to myself as well. Trust me. But the idea is display friendship. Display friendship. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you what? That you have love for one another. It's got to be once again. It's not a love that's cloistered and, and kept hidden. It's a, it's a love that's, you know, just uh, broad and, and, and on display. I don't, as an individual, a lot of times, I don't show affection very well sometimes, even with my own wife. Never have. It's just, it's just difficult to me as a person sometimes. I've got to make an exerted effort to do that. And I remember one time I was, I was talking to somebody from the church. I don't even know who it was on the phone. And my wife was there. And, and we're talking. And, and uh, this was kind of in the back of my mind. You know, I've got to be a little more expressive and all this stuff. And at the end of the conversation, I closed the phone conversation Okay, well, love you. And my wife was like, did you just, and I was like, did I just tell them I love them? Oh, my gosh. You know, I was kind of freaking out. And they just hung up, you know, and I thought, wow, okay, that was kind of weird. Well, I was messing with my wife the other day. This was years ago, but the other day this happened. I was talking to the cable guy or something on the phone, and uh, they had long since hung up, and my wife didn't know that. And I'm like, okay, hey, well, you know, I really love you. All right, bye. She came running into the living room. Did you just tell that guy you loved him? She was just all freaking out. But you know what? We have to be willing to display our affections. You know, and sometimes it comes hard for some people. But, you know, we just need to be willing to do that. And the last thing here, that's what it ends on. It ends on love. It's the agape love. It's that selfless sacrificing on behalf of one another. Uh, Romans 12.10 speaks of it in honor, preferring one another over above yourself uh, you know it's a good that's a good verse for kids to learn when they're fighting you know they're they're called to prefer one another over each other so where have we gone well we started in verse 11 and we worked our way backwards but please understand that in verse 10 it says therefore you can be diligent to make sure your calling and election if you practice these things what are those things the idea that to your faith, you're going to add virtue to that virtue, knowledge, and that knowledge, self-control, and to that self-control, patience or steadfastness, and to that steadfastness, godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Father, we pray today that you would help us to take these words that were spoken this morning from your word and apply them to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed effort to to reach out to other people in our body. I know our body's small, but we still need to make that effort. Lord, that we would be diligent to make sure of our salvation by practicing these things. And Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in and through this church. And Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in and through individuals. And, and Lord, we do pray for Jerry next week as he goes through these medical tests that you would just give the doctor's wisdom that you would provide for him. 
And Lord, we also think of um, Tom and Mary and their family as they're sick and dealing with the, the sick children, that you'd watch over them and care for them. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, bless our fellowship time after our service this morning. And uh, we ask you to, uh, uh, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, that they would understand that the, the first foundation is that faith, that believing faith, that Christ is the Savior. Lord, if anyone needs to talk to somebody after the service, we'd be more than happy to do that. But it's as simple as crying out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I acknowledge Christ as my Lord and Savior. We ask you to bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a...